Before baseball, football, or soccer, one sport alone captured the imagination of both rich and poor. Scully. The masses turned out by the thousands to cheer their heroes as they battled on the water, while gamblers won and lost fortunes on the outcome. This is the true story of a young oarsman, Ned Hanlon. The Boy in Blue, 1986. It's a good year for movies. What else came out that year? I don't know. I'm just... Probably. <laughs> was that... I want to say Back to the Future. Well, Back to the Future was looking forward. Some Canadian filmmakers were looking backward um, to... The, what was this? Like 18... It was like 1890s or yeah, something. I'm not it, sure exactly when. And uh, I feel like... How do you think this movie got made? Because I didn't... I couldn't find anything about it. Like who the, I tried to look up the director and the writer to see if I could find some sort of like career through line, but they're just like, they, they just work on like shitty TV. I don't know. It was like Canadian co-production though. Right. Was it? I think I believe, I mean, no, of course, yeah. Like no American company would make this movie. And so why, why did they like, (laughs) like it seemed it, this movie, I was thinking about it. Like, um, this, this movie is so, it, it's so like blatantly as one goal, which is to turn Ned Hanlon into a folk hero. Was that, he not already? Oh yeah. Or I don't know. I don't know. Was he in Canada? Like, did they talk about Ned Hanlon in school? Because like he, like, what is it? Well, ab- I mean- what is it about him that's special besides that he rode fast? Also, is sculling like the soccer of, of, of Canada? Canada? Because it seemed like everyone in the movie, I mean, I know it was different times. I'm sure in the 1890s, their choices for entertainment were extremely limited. <laughs> and they kind of just took what they could get. Croquet. <laughs> um, football with those funny outfits and like weirdly shaped balls. Cricket? Cricket. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I think, yeah, I think cricket was like the soccer. Right. Of, and then sculling was hockey? I don't know. It just seems strange to me that so much of the Canadian population, apparently from the looks of this movie, were that into sculling. Well, that's see. Okay, here's the thing that is like that movie definitely wants us to think that, but we're not so, Canadian, so we don't know. Right. Like, so you think it's like poetic license? Also, do you I, think maybe that, did did they know that when they were showing it to countries that weren't Canada, that they would have to like pump it up to make it look better? To like give us the impression that like all of Canada thought this was the greatest, like he was the greatest hero ever. Well, I, somebody told them that they had to if they didn't think about it because it, it it's so it's so quaint to me that anyone would think that Ned Hanlon, I I don't know that that he would be the Canadian version of Rocky, you know, like, well, I don't think he was the Canadian version of Rocky. I just think this, they made this movie to be right. the Canadian version of Rocky. Right. But I'm saying like Ned Hanlon as a historical figure, like, was he a was, national yeah. hero? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Right. Like, well, like it's, why, why was said, he so important? It said at the end that he went into politics and he won in a landslide. That's what the crawl at the end said. But there's, there's nothing else about it. So it's sort of like a, a Jesse the Body Ventura situation? I guess so, yeah. Um, maybe that's what that would be like the sequel that they were hoping to make. <laughs> I, I want to see that. <laughs> Starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Come back. Nicolas Cage is the Body Ventura? Yeah, dude. It's going to be like before sunset. <laughs> 
the thing that I didn't understand going into this movie was that it was actually um, based on like history. Like for some mm. reason, like the way that you described it to me, I guess I just assumed that it was like a like a Rocky situation. Oh, that where, they made him up, right? Where it was like a fictional, right. like like a heroic sportsman, <laughs> which would would be sillier, way sillier. Although they they kind of did it so much in 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 this one that it made it silly anyway. Even because even though I knew that like at least the majority of it was based on fact. No, it's still, it's, it still felt like a, a crazy overblow. I mean, they I, literally had a montage of yeah. him training the most montage of any training montage. Like you could put that and the eye of the tiger montage, yeah. like, like next to each other. And I'm pretty sure that they would line up like almost perfectly, including the score. Yes. In, which is the weirdest part to me was that not through the whole movie, but through all the scenes of like athleticism, this, it's like this fucking like chariots of fire score <laughs> that it like it, it really like fucks with your idea of time and place. Cause it already also like everyone's dressing old and like the film quality looks like dirty, but, and so it feels kind of old, but everyone, the way people speak to each other in this movie is so weirdly modern and and it feels like a 70s or 80s action like sports movie all the clichés are so of that time right i'm going to name my next album by the way scenes of athleticism <laughs> <laughs> With with just a, a screenshot of Nicolas Cage looking at the camera with the blue headband. The blue headband. Dude, he looked like Rambo. Yeah, I know. In, it's in the, the blue Rambo. It's not Rocky. In the scenes where he was training, he was wearing like like a torn off piece of like a shirt. I know. Wrapped, like wrapped around his head in a bandana. It was like a baby blue like Rambo bandana. And he, and he had like a sleeveless shirt. With like different blue kind of like triangles on the like tone, like it looked. I don't know. Okay, man. so going back to what you were like just saying about man. how everyone about how everyone was speaking to each other in like anachronistically modern terms, right? So there were certain other things in the movie besides just the dialogue, which I I feel pretty consistently through the whole thing was didn't make sense with the time period at all. <laughs> no, not at but all. But there were other little things that popped up, like for instance the way he was dressed in the, in the training montages right. where he looked like someone in an eighties, like a uh, 24 hour fitness. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it was totally flash dance. Whoever costumed that <laughs> did a, a really bad job. And, uh, but that's also, that's the picture they use for the theatrical uh, poster. So it gives you no, it, it, it doesn't give you like any, any idea context. at all that it's that much of a period piece no. based on the poster. You don't even know he rose. He's just like lifting weights. <laughs> He's just a body's like, so there's a whole alternate movie in here of yeah. Nicolas Cage as a 1980s bodybuilder. Right. Called the boy in blue. That <laughs> that was the original script, but after 15 rewrites, well, it, it ended up where it is now. Right. Also this, this movie came out like, a year and a half or something after it was filmed. Like they, they finished it and just put it on the shelf. So people knew at the back end that they had a really weird product that they'd okayed. Like, and someone was like, okay, we got to sell. How do we sell this historical movie about sculling to teens? 
You know, they were like, can't, can you? Right. Well, you you make it look like you could project any movie onto that poster. You know what I mean? Like, it's just Nicolas Cage sweating, showing off his muscles and lifting a weight, and he's in blue. So, did it, it came out in the States, right? Yeah. So, as as a theatrical release? Yeah. It came out as a theatrical release in the States and in Canada. And in the States, it only made $250,000. Um, that's abysmal, which is really bad. And, but in Canada, guess how much it made? 10 million, 7.8 million. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. It it did really well, which makes me wonder just like, you know, how important was Ned Hanlon is Ned Hanlon to Canadian culture. Also like, do, is this a movie? Is this movie like a point of reference that like people in Canada have like, you know, like, do they talk about it the way we're talking about Rocky? I'd imagine they do. I, I wanted to do some research on Ned Hanlon, the man. I didn't have time, but Mm -hmm. I, but I am genuinely interested in, in where he sits in Canadian sports culture or just Canadian culture in general, I guess. Cause this movie makes it seem like he's a huge fucking deal. Yeah. Right. Is this invention or is this reality? But like when, when he gets banned from the States, I mean, banned from the whole United States seems really, really insane. But like, still like he, what he like got out of his boat to like beat up another dude. No, he didn't even get out of it. Oh, he just rammed him. He just rammed him. He rammed him. Anyway, but when he comes back to Canada, there's these throngs of people, and they're like, fuck the bastards. Like, you don't need them. Like, we love you. One of the weird things about this movie was the the score. Mm Mm-hmm. There was some strange orchestral synth music right happening at times that i guess was meant to bolster the emotional impact but just ended up sounding really weird because you got these like pseudo like vangelis yeah like like yeah i mean it's like you were saying before yeah, like like like, like vangelis like chariots of fire like you know synth stuff right like really triumphant sounding music but it was it takes place in the 1890s so right it's really dissonant. It's, it's really strange. I feel like, I don't know what kind of music they listened to in 1890s Canada, <laughs> but maybe they could have tried to like pepper a little bit of that in. Mm. I don't know. I mean, were you swept along by the story? Like, did it, hold, Sometimes. did it hold your interest? It did. It held my interest. I can't say that I was swept along by it, nor that it necessarily uh, made me... Care. Yeah. It was obviously meant to make someone care about <laughs> yeah. Ned Hanlon or just sculling in general, maybe. Yeah. And, but, and yet neither you nor I looked him up. Right. <laughs> and we have to do a podcast on it. Like we, we both felt after watching this that we'd had enough Ned Hanlon. I, mean, I just I can't imagine that reading about the history of a famous scholar is going to be anything like keep my interest at all. So, in a sense, it it stuck with me. Sometimes, especially at the beginning, I was not so into it. But honestly, as the story went along and I got really invested, especially the second half of the film after he gets banned, Mm -hmm. and then he makes that, like, triumphant uh, uh, race at the end. Right, right, right. That, like, Australian supervillain. Yeah. (laughs) At that point, 
by by that point in the movie, I actually found myself going you like, cared. "Yeah, Ned, all right, <laughs> yeah. you you get it, man. Stick you it do to this." Him. And then the other times that it lost me was especially the in the romantic scenes or like some of the 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 subplot with like him being in love with that woman who is betrothed to the other guy. Right. It's like the it, villain's daughter. That's right, the villain's daughter. It, it it made it like a like a Jane Austen like BBC period piece. I know, and it was just like. like I, I, it, the tonal the tonal disparity between the, that those two things was a little bit much for me to like really get into a groove with it i think that that's one of the like parts that feels the most invented is when christopher plummer offers him like this huge wad of banknotes like literal banknotes and he's like he's like 10,000 like if you lose the race and then and uh, ned hanlon's like okay and then the next scene, the bad guy's like in his office. He's like, he just blackmailed me into marrying my daughter and he's going to win the race. <laughs> and like, and like, did that fucking happen? Did Ned Hanlon really blackmail this evil, <laughs> evil uh, man? And, uh, but also you have to be a psychopath to pull a move. Like, that. Know, like it's one thing to take a payoff to fix a race. I mean, I'm not sure, like, especially in this period how often that was a thing. I feel like people got away with it a lot more in the yeah. past, but well, yeah. What's the overseeing yeah, body? Right, exactly. Like, yeah. But, but then, but then to accept it and then publicly like throw it back in the guy's face, like yeah. he had to have known that even if he won that race, American sculling was going to find a way to like kick him out somehow. Yeah. So he almost kind of got what was coming to him when they were finally like, get out like your band, not in a moral sense, but just in a, well, you know, when you poke the tiger, yeah. like, yeah, the tiger as being the, the governing body of rich old white guys that runs the sculling. Yeah. It never really explained the importance of like a lot of basic things about sculling. It like, it kind of didn't, it, it, it didn't, it thought it might, I feel like they thought they'd lose you if they actually like went into, tried to explain too much of how, so they're just like, the boat has to go fast and beat the other boat. And well, but then again, so then maybe sculling is, is a big thing in Canada and they felt like, right. Like, Everyone who just knows, right. right. Know what the sport entails, then you can spend less time with that exposition in the movie. The, I've, this movie has the goal of, of deifying Ned Hanlon, or not? De- I don't know. They're they're trying to make him an awesome, a folk hero, a folk hero, and but like, what is it? I mean, in this movie, they portray him as not that smart, um, as a womanizer who's just like fucking around. Even when he's like trying to get with that other girl, he's like fucking prostitutes and stuff. He's like a, a rum runner, you know. He's like <laughs> he's bootlegger, quick to fight. And provocation like he, he's not like the only thing really in like any kind of traditional like w- like what makes this person an important person for us to know about is just he rode fast and they don't even really tell you about like, why that is right. a big deal they're just like everyone liked it like what did he break any records yeah you know did he was he the first at something oh well, and the I seat they're right the, the sliding seat. I forgot seat. about the sliding seat i guess he was the first innovator to use the, the sliding seat okay but he uses it in the movie he like he goes to this old man and the old man is like oh the fools they if they just use my sliding seat it would be great and then no one knows and then ned hanlon uses it in like one race and then you don't really hear about it anymore until like a later scene where someone's like you think that you can keep winning because of that sliding seat everyone has a sliding seat now (laughs) it's like okay he got there first 
which brings brings so what to the continuity of this movie. Here's something really weird, and it maybe is more of just me being weirdly uh, OCD and like focusing on like minutia that right. doesn't. I mean, that's kind of the whole the whole point of this, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, that being said, so the broken arm of his manager. Oh right. So my question is. <laughs> Was this a character choice? Or was it something that they had to like retcon into the plot because the actor broke his arm? Because if it's the former, then the continuity of the I know. is just fucked up. Completely bonkers. Yeah, his cast goes on and off. Right? Mm -hmm. And then also it's like from the timeline of the movie, no one should have a broken arm for like a year. <laughs> Years. <laughs> I know. I feel like the cast goes away and then there's like a scene really near the end where it's super prominent. Oh, I, and the movie ends with him getting his, like getting ready to get his ass kicked again. The fucking, um, his promoter. Dude, there's a, there's a problem in the last couple of cage movies that we've been watching where they seem to just do total left turn sometimes into, into like max Senate like silent movie pratfall comedy. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Have you noticed this? No. We're like, there will just be scenes. Okay. So it was in this one, there was in birdie when, with the dog scene, when they were oh, capturing yeah. the dogs. And then in the cotton club, there was, I'm trying to, I can't remember the specific example, but there was like a fight scene where it wasn't like a serious fight, but they were just kind of like, you know, like prop comedy. Right. Like really broad. Right. Right. It's just weird to me why I, I don't understand why, is it just the mark of a of a of script that doesn't isn't cohesive, or is it a mark of a director who thinks that there needs to be some sort of like lowest common denominator of like yeah. comedy for levity? Right. I'm just wondering why it's a theme that's been happening in a couple of these movies we're watching. I mean, it, it sometimes it mars and otherwise like it's okay mm -hmm. if a movie it's okay if a movie is like semi-serious the entire way through. Right. I don't know why you need to sandwich in a a, a, a scene of like people getting like pies thrown in their face. Yeah. I, I feel like there was in the eighties into the nineties there, there was like this idea of like the family movie, um, that a lot of these movies kind of are kind of skirting with, which is like, yeah, it's just the tone feels so broad that they want to catch. I guess I'm thinking of this. I'm thinking of, uh, racing with the moon. I'm thinking of the best of times, okay, it's a serious movie, but there need to be moments for the kids and there needs to be like intrigue for the men who didn't want to watch this and, and their girlfriend did. And there needs to be intrigue for the women who didn't want to, you know what I mean? Like it, they feel like they're pandering all over and kind of spreading it around. I think a lot of movies that made it really big were movies that hit that sweet spot. Right. Um, like Spielberg is all about that. Yeah, but Spielberg does it tactfully for yeah, the most part. Yeah, exactly. And none of these movies did. No. And I think there's also, like, pulling from old comedy traditions. I think there's, like, you can have humor in your movies without doing that. Yeah. But there was still all this, like, hacky comedy, I guess, that, like, people were, they assumed people responded to. So it's just, like, we have to add a funny element. Like, what's funny? Like, people falling down. Uh, this movie was really cartoonish. It was surprisingly cartoonish. Like, and again, yet also the, like too, there was too much dialogue. That was way the other. too much dialogue, <laughs> yeah. man. There was so much dialogue and with the way they were talking, 
that was with the modern vernacular mm-hmm. and phrasing. Just show me more scenes of rowing because for the most part, the scenes of athleticism yes, were really well shot and well edited, mm-hmm. I think, to the point where you understood what was going yeah. on. You understood who was behind, right, right. what the and stakes were, exactly. what they needed to do. And, and, and they could have extended those scenes to f- f- like fill out like another 20 minutes of the movie and gotten rid of a lot of the unnecessary hokey dialogue. I know. Yeah. A, I mean, there's a bunch of elements that were at play. I, I feel like it, it was really packed with like, there's like the cops wanted to get him and then he falls in love with this guy's daughter and they're getting into fights all the time and, and people, people don't want them, him to win. So they're like trying to kill him and they, and all of that is kind of happening in the first third of the movie. And then it kind of just focuses on him and that rich guy and the daughter and that like triangle, which is really the crux of the movie. Right. And they just take so long to get there. and And, and then, Tying all those weird threads together, like doesn't he like Christopher Plummer is the one who makes the the cops stop chasing him, right? Yeah, like fixes something for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or he ba- he bails him out of jail. Uh huh. He yeah he bails him out of jail, and then he's like, you okay now? Now I own you know part of your wings right. or whatever. Yeah. Not only is he like the ultimate villain, but he's like the kind of villain who Ned Hanlon's working with the his manager who's been with him from the start and pulled him up and then like big time big city rich guy comes down and like I can give you so much more. <laughs> this is such a funny there's so many fucking tropes in this movie that well, it just shamelessly uses. Right. So is it, this is something I was thinking about watching this movie was that it was kind of a metaphor for not just modern sports leagues, but I think possibly even this might be the way that organized sports have always operated since the beginning of organized sports. But this idea of you have a working class, like brunt, essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who is, has raw talent and really great work ethic. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then you have whether it be Christopher Plummer's evil big-time manager, lawyer, rich guy, or just in general, the other old white guys that were all on the, you know, the board of, like, American skull or whatever the fuck that was. Yeah. Rich white guys then uh, exploiting these, Mm. you know, working-class guys with, like, with that were doing all of the actual work and how yeah 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 that's a good point and i feel like this movie really like put that into good perspective yeah that it's it, that it's across all exactly. sports exactly. <laughs> that there exactly. are these people at the top monetizing everything and and just using working class people as pawns so uh for birdie nick cage had dropped 15 pounds to like play the tortured character in that and then he had one day between that movie's film uh filming schedule and this movie and he like in 10 days he like gained all that fat and muscle back had to like sculpt his body i mean he's fucking ripped in this movie like more he's he's the closest to being like a hunk a movie hunk in this movie as he i think he ever got and i guess he really hated that. Like he really hated this movie. Wait. Okay. So I'm going to read from, uh, the unauthorized biography of Nicholas Cage, the man behind captain Corelli. He called this movie a travesty. He said 
it was probably the first time I learned about disappointment and failure. There were times that I debated putting my hand in a trunk and smashing the lid down and breaking my hand so I wouldn't have to finish this movie. I had my shirt off a lot. It was this beefcake thing. I was young. I thought, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. And then I said, hold everything. I don't want to do this. So I went as far in the opposite direction as I could, referring to his bizarre performance in Peggy Sue Got Married. Like this movie was like, it like Breaking point. It scared him, I think, because it was so fu- fucking like formulaic, and his character is such like kind of a nothing. And then, oh, this is good too. Another reaction to the film was his decision on Halloween 1984 to get a tattoo, a fluorescent lizard on his back. At first, it was just a lizard, he recalled. But after I went home, I thought, this is too serious and pretentious. So I went back and I gave him a top hat and a cane. It was a stupid rationalization, like I will never have to take my shirt off again in a movie, at a time when I felt like I could have fallen into the trap of being a beefcake hunk bullshit. So... So this movie really marks a turning point psychologically yeah. Yeah. for Nicolas Cage. I think this, I think this is where he l- l- was like, starts no. to really grab the reins. Yeah, of yeah, his exactly, own and say, no, I'm an artist, and I'm going to play it however I want to play it. I understand why yeah. after seeing this movie. Yeah, and I think I mostly agree with him for those same reasons. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because in some ways this is the first time that we've seen Nicolas Cage act in a role that really portrays him as a man as opposed to a oh, boy yeah. or That's like true. a teenager. You know? Mm-hmm. Like I mean I guess in Birdie when you come when he came back from war both psychologically and otherwise he was a man, but they so much of that movie showed him yeah, before as, as a teen. It was like in, it was like in relation to like the innocence of him being a, right. a, a teenager, right? But, and racing with the moon, right? Rumblefish, and yeah. But this is the first movie where he really plays a like a, a man, a man. You know, I don't know. I haven't seen Peggy Sue, but does he? Does he go back to being like yeah, more of like a yeah. child in that movie? He plays. Uh, he plays. From a teenager to an old man. <laughs> yes, it's one of those movies. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. I'm purposely keeping myself in the dark about that one because mm-hmm. it has a, it has such a reputation and I already don't know anything about it. So I'd prefer to not know before I see it. Whatever you expect that movie is going to be like, it's not like it. This freaked him out and he was like, he's like, okay, I'm going to make be an artist and take all these interesting roles. And then... After leaving Las Vegas in like 94 or whatever, he kind of made a shift into being like kind of the everyman again. You know what I mean? Like from like the rock on, it's like he takes characters who aren't that or who aren't written that interestingly. Like, so what changed? Like he got like the Oscar and then he was like, yeah, maybe he finally realized that he got where he wanted in terms of people taking him seriously. And then he was like, okay, now I can loosen up and have a little bit more fun with it. Right. Because like within a couple years of leaving Las Vegas, maybe two or three years, he started doing shit like that. Like the family man. Yeah. Family man. Or where it's just the like bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Just kind of like middle of the road city of angels. Oh man. Yeah. Forgot about that. Yeah. It, for a reason, I guess. It gets, I, like, it gets so weirdly banal at that, that point. That's going to be a rough patch, I think. Yeah. Or really interesting patch. Well, I, there's it's, gonna, it's all really interesting. Yeah, yeah. None of it is not interesting. True. 
there's going to be some surprises in there. Like, I feel like I've seen the family man, but I don't think I actually have it. Does it, he like dies or something in it? It's, no. it's like a Christmas Carol. Essentially. Uh, okay. It's, it's like an updated version of Christmas Carol with a wonderful life. Like it's like a combination uh-huh. of the two. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it's just like, Oh, well we need a, we need a family Christmas movie. Let's take yeah. two other really popular mm-hmm. Christmas movies and put them together. Yeah. Yeah. It's just super broad. So all that's to say that we're about to head into the most interesting uh, part of Nick Cage's career. It is definitely. I mean, from Peggy Sue, I mean, it's then it's Moonstruck, then it's Wild at Heart. Yep. Then it's the 90s where he just right. like takes off. Fucking like uh, Red Rock West. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Oh, Honeymoon in Vegas. Right, right, right. Yeah. Raising Arizona. Cool. Um, so what, is there anything else we want to say about this? I don't know, man. How long? Tits. Been? There were more tits. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> You're welcome. Because I actually took, I wrote down in my notebook as the last thing that I wrote after I'd already finished the movie, just as a yeah. little button onto my notes, breasts in every cage movie so far question mark i just wrote tits yeah yeah but there yeah. there there have okay there have been there have been tits in every, every single, single one in every single one yeah there this one rumblefish yeah because they were the prostitutes in rumblefish right. right and uh valley girl right there were tits racing with the moon there were tits they, were tits. they went skinny dipping right cotton club yes was it like showgirls or something um they're there. They're they're brief. It's not it's not made a thing of like right. It's right. not like in Birdie where there's a whole thing where he like <laughs> where he, he like bounces, bounces the breast, <laughs> the but one breast. Yeah, they're 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 brief and they're they're kind of just incongruous in the scene. But it, it it must be backstage, like when the strippers are changing or something. Yeah, something like that. And uh, there there you go, Ned Hanlon, pioneer of the sliding seat. Canada's favorite son. We should get Ned's Our Man t-shirts printed up. (laughs) (laughs) Scenes of athleticism. Yes. Yes. Yes.